It's a little crazy out there right now, so Fangoria is offering a free two-month digital membership to everyone. Go to Fangoria.com for more information and to make an account. Then pour over all the exclusive articles, interviews, and reviews on the site, as well as original video content and podcasts, like this one. You'll even have access to high-resolution scans of the first 15 issues of the original run of Fangoria magazine, and counting. Go to Fangoria.com now to start your free digital membership. And if you're looking to add to your social distancing watch list, Fangoria's latest movie, VFW, is now available to stream on demand, and Satanic Panic is now available to watch on Shudder. And by the way, so is Nightmare Cinema. I'm Mick Garris, and welcome once again to the Fun Size Postmortem AMA, where you can ask me anything. Joe and I are socially distant, uh, and we are having our conversation today with your questions remotely. But uh, here we are, Joe. Good to see you with your full-on hibernation beard in play. Yeah, yeah, I let it. I let it really grow out the last couple of weeks because uh, every day is the same, and uh, there's nothing is real anymore. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I'm still keeping my razor sharp. Yeah, well, you've you've always been good about that. I think I've only seen you with stubble maybe twice in years. <laughs> so, uh, uh-huh. I, a lot's changed since uh, we last recorded an AMA. Boy, that's for sure. We're all sequestered. We're all uh, keeping away from each other, being safe, hoping everybody is staying healthy and inside and uh, trading our thoughts and messages and and friendships online. How are you in? uh, How are you and Cynthia holding up? We're actually doing really well. You know, we're we're comfortable at home. Uh, I head out and do a couple of hikes in the neighborhood a day, and and uh, keeping my distance and listening to audio books and uh, things like that while I hike. Uh, watching movies, reading books, having a really uh, it's actually a little bit of a uh, of a pause uh, in a good way from dealing with a lot of the maelstrom of what goes on in our lives, as you know, Joe. Mm, yes, very, very much. Uh, do you? So what? So what kind of stuff are you? What audiobooks are you listening to? What what movies and shows are you watching? Well, there's a lot of stuff out there. Um, later this week, I'm a guest on uh, the Movies That Made Me podcast that Josh Olson and Joe Dante do. So there will be a little bit of overlap in the things I'm talking about. But uh, I'm I'm just finishing a a new book that I'm reading. Uh, actually paper book, not on Kindle and not audiobook, the new Grady Hendrix novel, the Southern Book Club's Guide to Hunting Vampires, something like yeah, that. Yeah, I've heard of it. How is it, it? It's great. I'm a big fan of his. He wrote uh, My Best Friend's Exorcism. And yeah. this this is very Salem's lot in that it brings vampirism into our neighborhood. And I, I really like his work, Superstore, uh, no, Horror Store, was uh, another novel he did that I really like. So this is three for three for me, and I'm, I'm loving that. Um, some really great stuff. Netflix is really nailing it. I mean, there's three series on there that I'm really loving. One of them we're talking about on our bonus episode that we're posting the same day as this show. It's an Austrian-made 
series called Freud, but it is not your grandfather's Freud. It's not John <laughs> Huston's biopic. It goes into the supernatural. It's very sexual, very uh, horrific uh, and fascinating. Really, really good show. And the director, co-creator of the series, uh, Marvin Krenn, is our guest in our bonus episode. But it's a bonus episode because the quality of our Skype connection was kind of terrible and it fritzes out often throughout. So it'll be a challenge for the average viewer but or listener, but um, it's really worthwhile and, and the show is amazing. Um, well, I, I know our, our engineer, Chris, will do his best to clean it up. So. Yes, there's only so much even Chris can do. <laughs> uh, but also, I just finished the third season of Ozark, which is phenomenal. Mm. The talents of Jason Bateman are really incredible. Yeah. He's directed a bunch of them, including the first couple of the, of the series. He stars in it. He's great. Um, his range as an actor is always surprising. But his abilities as a director are, are really remarkable. And you can also see that on display, acting and directing, in the HBO series, The Outsider, which is, mm -hmm. of course, based on the Stephen King book. And in my opinion, one of the best King adaptations of all. It plays it like really straight, serious drama, but like an independent, deep thinking film. And that's not the kind of respect that King's material often receives. No. And, and, you know, having been written by Richard Price and Dennis Lehane, who are great novelists as well as screenwriters, there's a depth to it that, that you rarely get. The last time we uh, sat down, we, we talked about it on an AMA, but it was the day of the last episode. What did you think of the series wrapping up? I think it's great. Uh, yeah. You know, it, it really, it goes in places occasionally that the book doesn't go, but it goes deep into, into areas that don't often get attention in a book of that size. And, you know, it is the novel for television thing. Another show on Netflix again, um, is German made and it's Babylon Berlin. I'm only two or three episodes in and it's astonishing. The production is fantastic. It's beautiful to look at. The end of episode two has this 10 minute sequence that is mind bogglingly rich and choreographed and edited in, in such an exciting way. It's the most bravura filmmaking I've seen on television, maybe ever. Pretty, wow. pretty phenomenal. Wow. Wow. That's great. Yeah. That's a lot. And, and any, any movies, any, any movies catch your eye? Yeah. I just watched one. I mean, it's a few years old, but, uh, the ones okay. below is a little English indie that's on hoopla. And, uh, it's a great little thriller about a baby, <laughs> about a couple of babies. Um, but, uh, it's a very interesting, intimate domestic thriller that, to say anything more would be to ruin the experience. Um, I've been watching a lot of Preston Sturgis movies to go to the other end of the dark spectrum that mm -hmm. used to be. And again, I go into this on, on Joe and Josh's show, but um, there was he was the very first writer-director in Hollywood. Yep. And uh, the first one he did was uh, his script was in demand. People really wanted it. This, he, he had won an Oscar for The Power and the Glory, a screenplay that he'd done. But um, he had a script called The Great McGinty that they wanted to pay a fortune for. He said, you can have it for $1, but 
I have to direct it. <laughs> and so that was his first as a director. He had a very brief reign in the 40s that was spectacular and, and made movies like The Lady Eve and Sullivan's Travels and things like that. So they're, they're brilliantly funny. The satire is great and sophisticated, and yet his pratfalls are priceless. Really, really great, fun stuff to do. So if you're interested in black and white movies of the 40s, uh, he was the king. Yeah, no, I think I think right now it's such a great time to go revisit classics because we have that moment to do so. I found myself going back to just movies that I love that are just comforting, you know? Yeah, uh, what, like what? Uh, oh, gosh. I mean, we've been watching. I mean, uh, Ask Joe anything. Geez, uh, <laughs> we, we've been, you know, we started a little like a uh, little watch watch party club uh, on social media and we've been been watching movies together on Netflix, which has been fun. Uh, but I mean, everything from we watched uh, GoldenEye last week with Pierce Brosnan, just because Yay, you know and we didn't we didn't get a new Bond movie this weekend, so we might as well watch something you know another another classic one. Um, you know, we watched Ex Machina, which was really fun to revisit. Um, you know, I just I I loved that movie when it came out, and uh, I haven't seen it in a couple of years, and. You know, so so there was, you know, movies like that uh, that I just haven't seen in a while. And uh, just kind of, I think it's a great moment to just kind of indulge and remind yourself why you love movie making, you know? Exactly. Uh, that's yeah. that's kind of how I've been looking at it. Because, you know, you said it with, on Alejandro's episode last week, and I think it's, I think it's true. It's a weird time to try to write because we don't quite know what's the world's going to look like when this is all said and done. Yeah. Um, and that, and it's, it's really hard for me to get into an emotional place where I want to sit down and tell a story. And, you know, it's, the world is revolving around us so constantly and completely in terms of a shaken up state of affairs that I, I it's hard to really get my bearings enough to, to sit down, to commit to a hundred page screenplay you know yeah no it's 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 hard it really takes a lot to disconnect from what is going on in the world and and get yourself into that place uh emotionally and creatively uh it's but, probably uh, it's probably a really good time too to not talk about the coronavirus because there's nowhere you can turn where that's not the main subject that's and true so maybe we should provide a little respite from that why don't we uh, why don't we go to some questions that are not coronavirus related then? Sounds good. And we won't talk about the stand at all. Uh, I don't know if that's true. Oh, well, but, maybe we but, will. Okay. <laughs> all right. You've C got the questions. I have the questions. I'm in control. Uh, <laughs> all right. Uh, C. Taylor asks, has there ever been a film that's given you nightmares? You know, not in my adult years. But there was one when I was a child, and it, I never knew what it was called until well into adulthood. I thought it was called the white snake. But I remember a scene where a snake crawls up a wall and slides inside an open bedroom window, and it scared the shit out of me. Hmm. And uh, it had a visceral effect that very few, if any, films ever have. Well, years later... Uh, it, I found out it's a 19, I think, 1944 movie called Cult of the Cobra. And uh, it's not very good. And it's kind of boring. And it's way not scary. But that moment, I saw it on television years ago. And it was, a, that's the movie. 
That's the one. <laughs> it brought back that great childhood frisson, you know, of, of yeah. the, the goosebumps and everything. That, it was that thrill. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I, you know, it's funny. I, for me, they're not horror movies either. Uh, it was, I, I've told you before, I, when I was really young, I had terrible nightmares of the witch from Snow White. Um, yeah. Terrified of terrified of her. Uh, and then two other movies that stand out for me were Return to Oz. Um, uh-huh. And uh, and and Predator actually Predator wow. really really spooked me, which in, in retrospect is such a machismo action movie, but yes. you know it is scary monster in it too. Oh, that's uh, great! <laughs> and, and it was very original. Nobody had ever visualized a monster the way that the invisible version of the Predator had been done. It was a real technical feat, and anytime you can do something entirely new in a movie, is pretty exciting. Yeah, no, I mean it's one of my favorite movies. I still, like you said, I, I still get that thrill watching it. Uh, and but yeah, no, that that I definitely is probably the first horror adjacent movie that I saw that really really spooked me. Cool. Um, Gary asks, "Are there any filmmaking techniques you have always wanted to learn or try but haven't yet?" There are things that I've uh, I have wanted to do that haven't been the the right vehicle to do it in. Um, there's one thing that I'd love, and I've seen people use them. These were ideas I've had that I hadn't used because there wasn't the right opportunity, and then somebody else went out and did it, and it worked, and it was like, oh shit! Yeah, one of them would be to mount a camera to an actor. Um, mm and have it facing them, but on actually connected to him, but it wouldn't look like it for a chase sequence. Right. And, you know, it would be really exciting and fun to do as one of the cutaways you would use in that. It's been used several times since I had the, the genius idea that, <laughs> that obviously. I, uh, yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's the first time, the first couple of times we saw it, it was so effective. Now it's almost, almost tropey in a way. Uh, yeah, it definitely you know. is. I mean, it works, and it's yeah. very high octane and high emotion, mm-hmm. and, and it's so intimate to actually have the whole background is what's shaking and bumping instead right. of right. Actor, you know. And yeah, it's yeah. Something yeah. I haven't used, but one of the reasons that I discovered I liked directing occasionally as a director for hire on other people's TV shows is because of the opportunity to work with every kind of um, technology. And I had that opportunity on Once Upon a Time in a number of ways, but they have a green screen stage or a blue screen stage. They call it the Zeus stage. And it's where you just basically go on a set with your actors and some props and set pieces, but there's nothing else there. And all of the background and a lot of the foreground is put in later. So you're looking on the monitors, you have a sketch of what it is that is missing and will be filled in later, but you move your camera naturally and all of that, and everything is put in digitally. And I'd never done that before. And I did that on Once Upon a Time, and it was great. It's a new tool in the toolbox that I'd never used before, and it was really thrilling. And I I love that opportunity to be able to keep learning and evolving with the tools that evolve during the course of, of making movies. Yeah, no, I think I think you've always talked about how um, doing episodic TV has given you a chance to kind of try out all the new toys and technology, and I think I think that's great. 
Um, it is. It's really great, and I, I've really enjoyed almost every one of them. <laughs> <laughs> um, Dirk Rogers, who oh, fans, Dirk. yeah, who fa fans of Nightmare Cinema will recognize as uh, Machete and and Mister Stitches. Yeah, uh, he asks <clears throat> if you ever had the chance to do a Universal monster movie or franchise, which one would you want to do? And how would you approach it? Actors, color, black and white, rated R, PG, etc. Um, which is funny because I feel like part of the answer is I've already explored that, but I'll let you get into it. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, you don't want to think about a rating or an actor or uh, the the specific elements of it. It's really all about the story. It's really all about what is the groundwork. I would find it tough. I mean. I would love to play in that yard anytime, but it's also been done to death. There've been so many Frankenstein movies, not just universal, but hammer and uh, independent ones and teenage Frankenstein and, and everything. Uh, there've been so many Dracula movies and miniseries and TV series and just, you know, again, universal hammer and then everything else in, in the wake of that. Uh, there have been so many Wolfman, werewolf movies. Creature from the Black Lagoon has officially only been done once. But The Shape of Water, Guillermo's mm -hmm. kind of inspired by Creature from the Black Lagoon, takes it to such a wonderful, personal, iconic place for him that is so adult and all. Um, I love monsters. It would be great to come up with something new. Um uh, you know, it would be an honor to be able to, just like I was lucky enough to direct Norman Bates in Psycho 4. That's mm -hmm. an iconic universal monster, even though he's not part of that team. Absolutely. <clears throat> so, you know, it's not my dream to do that. But, you know, an actor who would be good at any monster might be Dirk Rogers. <laughs> <laughs> he was really great as Machete and really great as Dr. Stitches. Mr. Absolutely. Stitches. Mr. Yeah. Stitches, absolutely. I the the um I guess the one thing I would ask as a follow-up is, you know, obviously you played in the mummy sandbox for several yeah. years. Uh yeah. if if the, the opportunity was presented to pick any of the monsters to do something, would you want to go back to the mummy or would you want to explore one of the other ones, I guess? Well, you know, the way we were going to do The Mummy in both versions, the one that started with George Romero and the one that started with Clive Barker, <clears throat> were really unique. The, the Romero one was a little more traditional, but there hadn't really been a modern-day Mummy movie. And that would be something incredibly special, and we were going to do it. It was a period movie that was set in the 20s and then comes into the... Uh, current day, much like Bram Stoker's Dracula, the, the Francis Coppola. It didn't come into the current day, but it was this passionate love story set in the past. Um, the Clive Barker one was a thousand degrees <laughs> in a different direction. And that I would love for either of them to have been made, but the, doing the one that I wrote for Clive was so twisted and unique and bizarre, I knew a major studio would never make that script. <laughs> Clive came up with the story outline. I wrote the screenplay for Clive originally to direct, and then things changed around with his 
uh, desire to direct anymore. He became quite disillusioned. And then it was uh, possibly going to fall into my hands. But I knew that it would never get in front of a camera. You know, I, maybe it would. And the hope was always springing eternal. But uh, the reality of it was Clive Barker's is not a major studio sensibility. Um, but that was so twisted and sexual and and uh, bizarre. It was uh, it took uh, Babylon Berlin to <laughs> to further extremes. But um, that would have been an interesting way to go. But I, I, you know, that would not the more traditional mummy would not be my first choice. I made a joke that Stephen King put into one of his books where. Uh, basically, oh, here comes the mummy. I'd better walk a little faster. You know, it's not a very threatening creature. It's hard to build tension with a, a shambling uh, toilet paper wrapped corpse. You know? <laughs> Fair enough. Um, uh, Dirk uh, also asked one little small second question, which I'll, I'll just give a brief answer to, which is, uh, What's the status of the movie that I directed? Uh, it's done, and uh, it'll be coming out next month, and hopefully we'll give you more information about that very soon. Uh, and it is called? Uh, it's called The Au Pair Nightmare, and it'll be on Lifetime, and uh, we'll know definitively when in the next few weeks. Yay! So, yay! All right. Uh, Ahmed writes, I'm a huge fan of the Judge miniseries from 2001. Holy how did cow. you get in, how did you get involved uh, in such a non-genre project and what was it like working on it well that was a period where i had been doing a lot of mini series with great success and usually they were stephen king <laughs> or horror oriented but um i have always contended if you can do horror well, especially Stephen King, which is so deeply rooted in drama, that you need not be restricted to that. So I had the opportunity to do a legal thriller. I was a, a big John Grisham fan. I loved legal thrillers. It's uh, another side I'd never been able to do. And they basically came to me and offered it to me and uh, offered me the opportunity to do a rewrite, um, a production rewrite. And I was thrilled by the opportunity to do it. And it was great. At first, I'm thinking, boy, there's no visual effects. There's no makeup scenes. There's none of these things that are so time consuming. What are we going to do after lunch? Yeah. And then I learned. Coverage. Not coverage. I oh. learned dealing with actors' personalities. Oh, oh, people who were well-established actors, all of them really good and really talented, but each of them had a very specific, different way to deal with them uh, as far as their performances and, and interferences with who's upstaging whom and, oh, wow. and personality issues. A lot of them uh, involved were very high-end TV stars at the time. And all of them very talented and really good people and, and all of whom I liked. But there were definitely some personality conflicts <laughs> with and I, things that I had never experienced before. And so uh, you fill your day. 
<laughs> there's there's no day where you go home early because you didn't have to do uh, K and B effects or right, or, right, or motion control or things like that. Well, I know that courtroom scenes like like a dinner table scene uh has has i mean that's why i said coverage because yeah there's a lot of people you have to shoot and there's a lot of eye lines and geography things i mean yeah talk about that a little well that's very complex because you know we we talked about that around the dinner table scene in the stand where there's 11 characters or 12 or whatever and you have to cover their interactions from both sides of the axis uh, especially if there's movement going on. Well, in a courtroom, there's a lot of that. Plus, you have the geography of the actual courtroom. You shoot your masters where all of the extras are working first or last or however. Usually, you want to shoot masters first because your close-ups, you, you fine-tune the performances the closer you get and the right. more that you notice the differences and the the uh, subtleties and vagaries of each of those performances. So often when you're halfway through the day, you dismiss all of the people in the courtroom, the bystanders, and restrict your your coverage to the closer coverage at the front of the courtroom with all of the major players. So all of that takes a lot of figuring out and choreography and, and interplay. Um, and so this was something where I had the luxury of concentrating entirely on drama and performance and trying to make it look as good and as cinematic as possible and tell a complex tale. It had some really nice, meaty moments of, about the crime that preceded the trial that was a lot of fun. But the courtroom stuff itself was was really fun to do, but also very demanding on the actors. There's a lot of dialogue and you don't have the, the luxury of things to cut away to. Right. Uh, and I should say that David Cronenberg has a cameo in that. And he's really good as a, uh, a, an inspector, uh, inspector detective uh, from the uh, police force who testifies on the, on the stand. Well, that's, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, speaking of stands, <laughs> here we go back to the pandemic, back to the pandemic. Mario asks, uh, now that you've lived, or I guess we're saying living through a yeah. pandemic, are there any parts of the stand you would have wanted to go back and change? You know, the stand was a place in history and a lot of people ask me about how I would do things different. Um, if I were able to do something over. And my answer is almost always the same. I'd like a shark. I'd rather keep moving forward mm -hmm. uh, than die thinking about uh, how I should have done it. Um, the, the most accurate pandemic epidemic movie I've ever seen is contagion. It's amazing. Yeah. It's almost like a documentary. I'd never heard the term social distancing until then. Novel coronavirus is in that movie. And it's, you know, 10 years ago. It's right. it's really phenomenal. And it is almost like a documentary, but a very cinematic one. It, it's brilliant. It's just great. And in the stand, the the virus the epidemic is really the MacGuffin that puts mm -hmm. the story in motion. You know, we, of course, wanted it to be as accurate as, as we could, but we also knew we were telling a story, we were telling a drama, and that that illness, Captain Trips, uh, 
kills off everybody to get to where we're going, to set up the final battle between good and evil, to inspect the Christian view of the everlasting. And uh, so it was an opportunity to do that. I will have the chance to see how it's being done in modern times because Josh Boone is is doing the miniseries uh, for CBS All Access that will be on, I think, this month, if I'm not mistaken. I, I, I've, I've said before that I feel like this is the best advertising Josh Boone could have ever asked for. <laughs> <laughs> well, look for me. Unless I've been cut out, I have a silent cameo in the new version of The Stand. I have a feeling uh, it'll probably stay. And and the good news <laughs> is, is people will be able to recognize you very easily. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Not a whole lot of people with uh, the Mick Garris look. The other, the other amazing thing that's happened the last couple of weeks with the stand is it's sold out. Uh, yeah, it's it's really hard to get right now. Well, the um, timing was pretty phenomenal in doing the the reconstituted Blu-ray. The beautiful, beautiful work that that uh, they did. Um, CBS and Paramount Home Video did. And the timing of the release was kind of remarkable. And what was funny was right before the pandemic started going on, nothing funny about the pandemic, but yeah. Amazon was selling it at 58% off. And then, <laughs> not for long, because it started flying off the shelves. And, it's, and you can't get it. And it's not streaming anywhere that I know of. So um, no, no, I think it's it's just the Blu-ray, but it's been selling like hotcakes, which is which is amazing. Well, uh, I hope that shows up in the residual checks. That's all. I know. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that note, uh, it's great to see you. It's great to see you uh, happy and healthy. I'm excited for everyone to hear this interview with Marvin. Uh, so I'm going to shut up now and all uh, right. let you take over. <laughs> well, uh, thank you everyone for listening and. Please send us your questions at Joe Russo Tweets or at Mick Garris PM on Instagram or Twitter or at Postmortem with Mick Garris on Facebook. And uh, we look forward to seeing you next time. If you're enjoying the podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you would let the world know about it by reviewing and rating it on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. If you have comments or questions for our Ask Mick Anything shows, send them to producer Joe at Joe Russo Tweets or to at Mick Garris PM on Instagram or Twitter or the Postmortem with Mick Garris Facebook page. This is a brand new address, so don't forget it. That's at Mick Garris PM on both Twitter and Instagram. And if you'd like to see my vintage and recent video interviews, making of documentaries, and audiobooks of some of my short stories, go to my website, mickgarrisinterviews.com. Thanks for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every other Wednesday and subscribe on iTunes. <laughs>